welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. So I'll, uh, I'll start by introducing myself. Uh, my name is Amjad. I am a sexaholic of the hopeless variety. And uh, I have been miraculously sober since November 21st of 2016. And, uh, you know, I'm just really grateful to be here. Uh, just wanted to start with a prayer of, uh, I guess, of humility. I'm just asking God, my higher power, that whatever comes out of my mouth for this session is not from me, but rather through me. And I'm asking hit the words and the message to be from, from my higher power and not to be of some creation of my mind because I don't trust my mind. It's a, it's a sick place. <laughs> it's caused me a lot of problems in my life. And I would much rather get a message from my higher power. And I, I pray that that is what you guys receive here today. So uh, with that, I'm just going to, for myself, uh, do the, I, I've heard a lot of the speakers today uh, using the third step prayer. It's the one that I start my day with, and uh, I'll start with that for myself and, and then um, just go into my story. So my uh, uh, so third step prayer, God, I offer myself to thee to do with me, to, you, uh, to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. I guess I must be nervous. I forgot there's their search to prayer. Uh, and I do it every day. Okay, I'm gonna I'm actually gonna stop there and just go into my story. Um, you know, my my version of the third step prayer is actually a little bit different. I ask God every day I get on my knees and I ask God to make me a puppet on his strings, uh, to make me a mop in his hands, that wherever there is a spill that he wants me to clean up, that he uses me for that. Uh, that he pulls the strings and I follow uh, the actions and that it's not of my own desires and my own plans for the day, but rather what he wants to have done with me today. So I just, uh, the topic is actions of powerlessness. And um, I'll start with that. My, um, my, I guess my um, experience is that steps for me, the steps were uh, extremely difficult when I came in. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I, when I first came into the program, so I, uh, my, my story is that I came into the program in December of 2005. That's my been around date. And um, I, my journey has been that I spent about 10 months sober the first time. I refused to get a sponsor. I was convinced I, you know, well, I don't know that I was convinced I didn't need one, but I just didn't like any of the guys who had any sobriety. <laughs> so I, you know, I kept, I kept telling myself and justifying that I didn't, you know, I, I got this, I don't need a sponsor. Uh, after about three or four, about three months, three and a half months, I stopped going to meetings because I really felt like I didn't need meetings. 
uh, you know, that's that it was just an extra burden that was unnecessary because I was sober now and uh, all I needed was to just uh, get the literature and I was off on my own. And I was running. Well, 10 months later, I came back crawling on my knees, begging for the program to take me back. Although nobody was really there. I mean, they just welcomed me with open arms. I didn't have to really do any begging and pleading. And then I was sober for about five years and 10 months. So just shy of six years. And that was a, it was a really amazing time. The first three years of that, I was, I had a sponsor. I was actively working the steps. I actually got through all, uh, I got through the first nine steps. And when I got to step 10, my sponsor lost his sobriety. And um, I asked another member to sponsor me who over the next three years, I called, uh, I think it was two times, maybe three. Uh, but I want to say it was two times. So I called him about two times over the course of the next three years. And uh, so you can imagine what kind of a guidance I was getting from that sponsor if I just wasn't calling him. And I think a lot of it was that I felt like, I, you know, at, at this point, you know, I almost have six years. At that point, I actually almost had three years. And, uh, you know, the sponsors are there for emergencies, right? I mean, they're, they're the people you call when, when things are going bad. Uh, not necessarily somebody you call on a regular basis. That doesn't make sense. Uh, so in any case, I, um, I managed somehow through white knuckling and, uh, I don't know what I, I managed to get to five years and 10 months. And then I came crashing and burning down and I went on a, I want to say it was about a one month binge of porn and masturbation that I thought would kill me. I, I, I was done for and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse and it was worse than where 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 I was when I originally got sober and uh, I've heard this shared many times that this is a progressive illness and that was very true for me that even though I had been sober for so many years when I went back out there my the my behaviors and my acting out was much worse than when I when I originally got sober and uh and it was scary and it was scary. And so I, you know, I, I got another sponsor and I committed to getting sober and I just couldn't do it. I was what, you know, a lot of groups we call chronic slippers. Uh, you know, people who I maybe get a, a month here, a month there, a few weeks here, a couple weeks there, uh, maybe a couple months even. And I'm right, right back out. And, you know, again, lose my sobriety, lose my sobriety, lose my sobriety. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I got so frustrated that I finally um, decided to become a newcomer again. And I told my sponsor, I said, I, you know, I know we've, uh, you know, he often told me that, you know, I was, I was already sober a couple of years when he came uh, back into the program. And, uh, you know, the conversation we had had was that, you know, he would often say, well, you know this. As a matter of fact, I think I may have heard this from you uh, originally. And that wasn't helping me. I had to become a newcomer. And I, you know, I, I told myself and I told him that no more, I know nothing. I'm starting from scratch. I've never heard this stuff, never seen this stuff. It's the first time I did the steps again, like it was the first time I, um, you know, read all the material, like it was the first time I was ever seeing it. And I got, uh, something close to a year and a half of sobriety and, and, for those of you who maybe have uh, been in the program longer, 
you may notice that I'm talking about these periods of sobriety, but I'm not talking about the quality of the sobriety uh, per se. It's just uh, you know that I've had this sobriety. But what kind of what was that recovery like? And I, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a, in a few minutes, God willing. But uh, so I, you know, I'd gotten sober about a year and a half, and then I lost my sobriety again. And then I got sober for another year and a half, and I lost my sobriety again. And then I got sober for about three and a half years. Uh, no, I think I was just a couple months shy of four, four years uh, the third time around. And I had this nagging feeling that I had actually participated in a behavior and lost my sobriety sometime back. And I had that written down in my journal and I went back and I looked at it and um, after a lot of prayer, meditation, speaking to my sponsor, I had one of the old timers actually tell like point out to me that the sobriety definition has three parts, which I never, I don't know how I missed that the first 5,000 times I read the sobriety definition. But I, you know, it, it talks about no sex with self, no sex outside of a, uh, a marriage between a husband and a wife and progressive victory over lust. And an old timer had reset his sobriety and said that because he felt he wasn't, he didn't have progressive victory over lust. And so I committed to that and I, I reset, I changed my date and I shaved off about a year and a half of my sobriety. So I took a, about a year and a half off. And so now I'm today, uh, I'm celebrating my third three years. Um, as soon as I get to a meeting and pick up a three year chip, but these three years have been very different than all the previous years. And so what changed? And that's really what this topic is about. I uh, just wanted to share my experience, strength, and hope on this. You know, how did I go from being somebody who had a long period of sobriety, but the quality of the sobriety was not good? It was, you know, there were long periods where I was a dry drunk, uh, you know, I was unhappy. My behaviors really hadn't changed. My family was still unhappy and distant from me. I, uh, you know, I, I just didn't feel like I was functioning in society. And uh, I carried this weight and this depression around with me all the time, even though I had almost six years of sobriety. And then I turned into a chronic slipper and I couldn't stay sober for longer than a few couple of months max. And I thought that was the end of it because I just I thought I had missed my one chance at sobriety and I would never get sober again. As a matter of fact, the day that the change happened was the day that I uh, I came to the conclusion that this is going to be my story, that for the rest of my life, I'll have one month at a time. So I'll be sober for a month and I'll lose my sobriety and then I'll go back out there, porn, masturbation, lost in some form and then get another month of sobriety. And that, that's just going to be the rest of my life. I will spend the rest of my life in this cycle of, you know, brief periods of sobriety and, uh, and some voice inside of me, which I believe was my higher power speaking to me directly in my heart said, no, no, that cannot be your story. That is not your story. And, and I think the connection really came when uh, there was something inside of me that said, uh, how can I be of maximum use to my higher power if that's my story? And it was almost like I heard this voice inside my heart say, I have bigger plans for you. 
you can't, that cannot be your story because I have bigger plans for you. So um, this topic of actions of powerlessness, you know, that for me, the actions of powerlessness is really about, it's about me living like a person who is powerless over lust and my life is unmanageable and making decisions and taking actions that are consistent with that belief. So in step one, what I learned, and I, I truly believe this from the bottom of my soul, that I am powerless over lust. And I've lived that. I've lived that many times to where I have seen my powerlessness in action. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had a therapy session with my wife last night. And the one thing that she is most upset about is that the time she caught me, this was early in our marriage, the time she caught me, I swore by God that I would never do it again. I swore to God that I would never do it again. And two months later, I was back out there and she caught me again. And that devastated her because she's like, you made an oath on, you made an oath on God, which in her mind is like the highest level of of any kind of oath that you can make and you broke it. And at the, you know, at the time I didn't know what was going on, but today I can say very clearly that I meant every word of it. I meant every word of that. When I said, I swore to God that I would never do this again, I meant it. And I didn't want to do it again. And every cell in my body said, no, you will never do this again. And within a couple of months I was doing it again. And it's because I'm powerless. I am absolutely powerless over lust. In a one-on-one -on -one battle with lust, I will lose every time. You know, my father was a boxer for many years. And, you know, I, I could just imagine me getting in a ring with lust on the other side. And lust doesn't look like much. It's actually, you know, very attractive. And, uh, you know, it's just something that just seems like so, uh, so good. Uh, but lust can take me out in a matter of seconds. And I have, I don't stand a chance in a battle against lust. So, okay, so I've, I've accepted that. And actually what happened during that chronic slipping phase was that I came to the conclusion that if I'm powerless over lust, then every time I acted out, every time I looked at pornography or I masturbated, every time I indulged lust, I was basically, there was a voice inside my head said, well, you can't help it, you're powerless. You can't help it. You're powerless. You can't help it. You're powerless. And so one of the things that changed for me is I have a, a fellow in, the, in my uh, local uh, group, my home group, that used to say to me every single time I would say, well, I'm powerless. I, I couldn't help it. Last night I acted out again. And he would say, I am powerless, but I am not helpless. There is one who can restore me to sanity. May I find him now? And he said that to me so much that I could not say the phrase, I am powerless, without the rest of it automatically coming out, like an auto, auto thing, auto sentence. It was, I am powerless over lust, but I am not helpless. There is one who can restore me to sanity. May I find him? As a matter of fact, later I added a sentence in front of it. I said, I am crazy. <laughs> I am insane. I am insane. And I'm powerless over lust. But there is one who can, I'm not helpless. There is one who can restore me to sanity. May I find him the one place that I will always find him right now in the present moment.
So that, you know, that was a, a big change for me. And then the other piece of that is I began to act like a person who's powerless over lust. And, you know, there's a couple analogies that really helped me, a couple of metaphors that really helped me. One is, you know, my sponsor said that you have a cancer, a cancer of your soul. And uh, you have to act like a person who has cancer. You know, people who have cancer go to chemotherapy. They take certain medications. They watch their diet. They exercise. There's things that they do if they want to live a, a longer, healthier life free from the cancer, even if they get to a point where the cancer is in remission and it's, you know, they're declared cancer free for the moment, but they still have things they have to do because they're a person who could get cancer at any minute. It could just come back in full force. So for me, I had to just, I had to start acting like I have a cancer of the soul. I had to start taking meetings so seriously that I remember one day, my mother-in-law just really, uh, does not like the fact that I go to meetings. I don't know, for some reason, it just really bothers her uh, that I go to meetings. And um, one day I was, I had, I was very, very sick. I had the flu and I had a fever and I was coughing and I was congested and I was just very, very sick, uh, sweating and shivering. I remember like I was shivering in the night and my mother-in-law and my wife, my mother-in-law was, my in-laws were visiting and my mother-in-law is covering me with blanket and my wife is covering me with blankets and they're putting warm rags on my head and they're trying to make me feel better. And my, I heard my mother-in-law say to my wife, she's like, good, at least he won't go to that stupid meeting in the morning. And uh, my, wife looked, my wife started laughing. She started laughing really hard. And she said, yeah, right. Just watch, just see what he does in the morning. And sure enough, I got up in the morning I wrapped I wrap myself in two layers of clothing, wrapped myself in a blanket, put a mask on my face, and I went to the meeting. And I sat in the corner. I told everybody, don't touch me, don't come near me, but I need to get my chemotherapy. I have to get my chemo today. I have a cancer of the soul. I have to be here. And I was happy to be there. I was absolutely happy to be there. It was the one place that I was so happy to be, even though I was sick, because I knew I needed to get my chemotherapy. Uh, you know, I showed it one guy and he said, where's the happy, joyous and free when that? And I was like, oh, believe me, I was happy, joyous and free. That was not a difficult thing for me to get up and go to the meeting. I would much rather have been sick in the meeting than sick at home in bed. Um, so I started taking my meetings so seriously because that was my chemotherapy. I took my phone calls very seriously. If other members called me, uh, if I needed to call, if I had even the slightest slightest disturbance inside of me. I would, I would text, I would call, I would reach out, I would try to get a hold of somebody. And until I did, I would just keep, you know, asking God to hold me and love me until somebody else was available. And uh, that, you know, that really changed my approach to things. You know, because in the past, I would wait until I was seconds away from acting out and then try to call. But by then it was too late. I had already made my decision to act out. I had, and now I was just living out that decision. And even if I made the phone call, it wouldn't stick because I, before I even made the call, I had already made the decision to act out. And I, now it was just, I'm trying to get this other person to convince me to change my mind, but I've already made my mind up. So I hang up and I go act out. But one thing that I noticed is that the majority of the time, I made phone calls 
after I had acted out, after I had indulged lust. I didn't make the phone call before. And I've noticed this trend in myself a lot, and I've actually seen it in, in some of the guys that I work with that are chronic slippers uh, that are really struggling with sobriety, that I get the call from them afterwards, the next day. And my sponsor used to say, like, what part of promptly admitted it are you having trouble with? You know, it's like the word promptly means it's quick. Uh, and in the, in the white book, it talks about in getting started, it really describes this whole process uh, very well and says, you know, the sooner we make the call, the closer to the heat of the action, you know, the closer to that moment of lust, the, the sooner it is, the better, the more powerful that call is going to be. And then in that call, I surrender my lust. And I, I open up myself and make myself vulnerable to the other person. And that's how I get some release. But if I'm calling afterwards, I believe that what I'm doing is I'm actually just feeding my lust cycle. Because I'm acting, what I was doing is I was acting out. And then I'm calling somebody. So that person will say to me, oh, I'm just, it's okay. You know, this kind of stuff happened. Just pick yourself back up. You're a sexaholic. This is what sexaholics do. Just, you know, okay, try harder next time. Go, you know, go back out there. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? And so I somehow I felt like, you know, we don't, in my faith tradition, we don't have confession, but I kind of felt like, you know, it was confession and, and I'm doing it afterwards. And it's, it's so much easier for me to call afterwards, not easy, but easier to call afterwards than it is to call before. Because if I'm calling before, and the thing is, like, for me to call right before I act out is, is impossible. So I call the moment I'm disturbed, the moment something inside of me feels off. I'm upset. I'm sad. I'm angry. I feel, you know, like just like something doesn't feel right. Uh, I'm, I, for me, what it is, I start to notice the texture of things. I know it's a strange, probably a strange concept. But I, you know, I'm in a store and I can just see the colors more brightly than I normally see them. It's like I just want to drink the whole entire store in through my eyes. And, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the speakers earlier shared about being, a, you know, the concept from Roy Kay about being an image junkie. You know, I mean, for me, that's, that's my story. You know, it's like I, I need that visual food. And, and what starts as, oh, look at this beautiful apple. It's so nice and fresh and it looks good and it smells good, very quickly turns into me lusting after another person. And so uh, as soon as I feel that sensation, that drive, that pull, that's when I know it's time for me to reach out uh, to someone. And, uh, and I, I start by, you know, and, I, and I've shared this before in the past, that I start by reach out to God. I get back to the present moment, and um, and it's through that process that I can move past the lust. But I have to act like a person who's a sexaholic. I have to act like a person who's powerless over lust. So what you know, um, kind of in a way for me, what I'm talking about is steps one, two, and three. You know, step one being that I'm admitting that I'm powerless over lust. Step two is that I believe that there is a possibility that I could be restored to sanity. And even if I don't believe that I could be restored to sanity, I, I can believe that other people, it's working for other people. So then what's so different about me? Why won't it work for me? Does God really hate me that much that it's not going to work for me? So that belief, and then finally, then step three, me just making that decision 
And what that what step three tells me, it, it really highlights one th big thing for me, which is I made a decision to turn my will and life over to God. So wait a minute. I thought in step one, I said I was powerless. So does that, but how can I have the ability to make a decision? But step three tells me I can decide. I just can't fight lust by myself. But I have a whole fellowship of people from all around the world and a higher power that is much bigger than lust that can take care of the lust problem. I just have to make a decision to turn my will and life over to that higher power. And so for me, that's another piece of it is that, you know, for as if I, I'm powerless, but I'm not decisionless. And I, I had a sponsee once who had this, this big epiphany and I actually asked him to record it for me and send it to me. And I sometimes share this with folks that are, that are really struggling. And he said it so, so beautifully, what I guess what we had been talking about for months. And he said that, um, you know, when he makes a decision to act out, then it doesn't matter how many people he calls, what he does. It's like he's trying to get people to turn that decision around, but the decision's already been made. I talked a little bit about this earlier. But if I can make a decision not to act out, to turn my will and life over to God, even if I die, then I make phone calls, I reach out to people, I connect with my higher power to help reinforce that decision. And for me, what that looks like, is just very simple. This actually happened to me a couple of months ago. So my biggest issue is actually celebrities, uh, celebrities, particularly in Hollywood, but also all around the world. And... Um, you know, something happened. I don't remember the exact story. By the grace of God, it's been erased from my memory. But there was some incident that happened where I heard about a celebrity issue that, you know, would have been very triggering for me. And I felt the pull come so strongly that I hadn't felt in years. You know, in the last two or three years, I hadn't felt that strong of a pull for lust. And I, I got on the floor on my hands and knees. And I put my head on the ground and I sat there shaking, shaking like a drug addict, you know, just like I was vibrating and shaking and I was just like convulsing in pain. I was in so much pain. My stomach hurt, my body hurt, my head hurt. It wanted the lust so bad. And there was one sentence coming out of my, my mouth. I said, God, I choose you over lust, even if I die. If I die here on this floor right now, I will die choosing you. And I just did that for, I don't know, I felt like, felt like forever. It might have only been half an hour, but it felt like it was a few hours that I laid there on the floor uh, just, just repeating that decision again and again and again. God, I choose you over lust. Uh, so going back to the powerless concept, you know, I'm talking a lot about actions because that's really you know, this, this topic is about actions of powerlessness. It's about me acting like a person who's powerless. Um, so a person who's powerless, that doesn't mean that I don't, I no longer have the power to choose. For me, what that means is that I have the power to choose. I just am powerless over lust. And so I make that decision and then I follow it up. So if I'm powerless over lust, 
then, you know, I, uh, it's one of the first questions I ask newcomers because I ask myself this every day. And, uh, you know, I ask newcomers as well. I say, you know, the newcomer call, oh, you know, or somebody who's really struggling and says, you know, in the last three months, I've lost my sobriety six times and I'm just really having a hard time. And I said, well, are you trying to stay sober? Like, are you even trying? And usually the person says, yes, yes, I'm trying so hard. And, and that's the, that was me. That was my story. My sponsor probably asked me that. So many, oh yeah, I'm trying really hard. I am trying so hard to stay sober. And then I usually respond with what a waste of time. What a waste of time. That's like, you know, I mean, why am I, why would I waste my energy trying to stay sober when I know I'm powerless over lust? Instead, what I do every day, I don't, when I get up in the morning, my effort is not towards staying sober. My effort is in finding God, finding a higher power who can keep me sober. So I say, you know, I don't try to stay sober. I try to find God. I seek God every day. Throughout my day, I'm seeking that connection with a higher power that, you know, I, I didn't have for most of my life. And the sobriety is just like this thing that happens on accident as a result of me having this amazing relationship with the higher power. And, you know, the last several speakers, I had the opportunity to listen to some of them, uh, you know, really shared on that topic of finding that connection with the higher power. So for me, that's, you know, that's really what a lot of what it's about is that I, you know, I need to seek God and seek that connection with him. And that's part of my action of powerlessness is that I'm powerless over lust. So it's stupid for me to fight it. That's just white knuckling. Trying to stay sober is another word for white knuckling to me, because that's what it means I'm doing is I'm trying to stay sober. That means I'm white knuckling. I am somehow through my own power, which by the way, is a human power, which cannot relieve me because I've, I've already accepted that that no human power can relieve my sexaholism. Yet here I am using my abilities and my, and I, you know, uh, I guess it's a good time to mention this, which is the one power I try to use the most to stay sober. And the one that is least effective is my intellect. You know, I memorize the literature and I come up with all these cute sayings. And, you know, I, when I first came into the program, you know, I talked about that first couple of months when I walked in and I remember my first meeting, they read the 12 steps. And after they read each one, they said, step one, admitted we were powerless over lust and that our lives were unmanageable. And in my mind, I said, yes, I did that. Check. Next. Then they read the next one. And they went through all 12. And all the way through 11, I was like, yes, 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 yes. When it got to 12, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I need to do that one. You know, and I heard, what is the, I guess the phrase is like two-stepping. For me, it was like one stepping. I skipped one even. I went straight to the end. You know, like I was an advanced student. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. Now I can tell you guys how this works. And I went home and I read a couple of pages of the white book. And I was convinced I understood the whole thing. I didn't even touch the big book. Didn't even touch it. I was like, oh, I don't need that stuff. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wrote in the first two or three months, I wrote like four articles, which I submitted to the essay newsletter. Four. <laughs> I still have them because I, I go and I read them and I laugh because here I am a newcomer and I'm trying to tell everybody else how this works. Uh, because I was convinced. See, what I came looking for in this program 
this is what I came. There's two things I came for. Number one, I walked in and I said, what are you guys going to do for me? That's what I need to know. What are you guys going to do for me? What am I going to get out of this? And the moment I'm done getting what I need from you guys, I'm out of here because I'm not going to waste my life coming to all these stupid meetings and participating in at the time we didn't even have, I didn't, I didn't have an iPhone and we didn't have the internet. This was back in 2005. Uh, I mean, we had the internet, but we didn't have, I, I didn't, we didn't have WhatsApp and Zoom and all these other neat technologies that we have now. Sim wasn't even a, a twinkle in somebody's eye. Uh, so I, you know, I came in and I thought, I'm not going to waste my life on this stuff. Just look, just fix me and send me back out there. I'm good to go. That was the first thing. The second thing is I came in looking for and seeking an intellectual experience. I was seeking enlightenment. I thought if I could just understand how this disease works and how to fight it, that I would be saved, that I would be cured and I would no longer need lust. That's all I needed. I needed you guys to explain to me how this works. And I needed to have this great, as a matter of fact, I remember my current sponsor when we first started working together, I would call him up every couple of days and I'd say, oh, you're not going to believe what happened. I had another great epiphany. I had, you know, just this amazing realization about the program. And he would just laugh. He's like, you and your epiphanies. You know, it's like every other day. But guess what? It's not keeping you any sober, any more sober. You know, it's like all these great ideas that were popping out of my head like popcorn. And, you know, I thought if I could just have an amazing, earth-shattering intellectual experience that all my problems would be solved. And then one day I remember after, after a, a, a couple of day binge and I'm sitting in my sponsor's car and he's hitting me on the head with his finger and he's pointing at my head and he's like, that is where the disease is in that in right there in that head of yours. Yet that is where you're trying to find the solution. And I think that was the day something inside of me said, okay, I'm going to have to try something different. And what I have come to believe is that for me, I don't need an intellectual experience. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced even if I, I believe I've had many intellectual experiences in this program and none of them got me sober. None of them helped me with recovery. None of them helped me with my rage. You know, I would still punch holes in walls and yell and scream and break furniture. My family is scared to be in the same room with me. You know, I would mess up majorly at work and not know what to do about it. I quit jobs because I just felt like I was inadequate. My life was a complete unmanageable mess, regardless of sobriety. Regardless of some little sobriety here or some, regardless of all these amazing intellectual experiences that I was having. Because that's not what I need. I am a sexaholic of the hopeless variety. That means to me that there is no known cure for my condition. There is nothing out there. There's no person. There's no literature. There's no amazing talk on YouTube. There's no sponsor. There's nothing out there that can help a guy like me. There's nothing. I am completely hopeless. Like I'm the type of cancer patient that when the doctor sits down with them and says, you have a cancer of the soul, you're on stage six and you have like maybe a couple of minutes to live. As a matter of fact, we're shocked you're still alive because your spiritual cancer is so bad 
that we're not even sure, like, there's no way you're even walking out of this clinic alive right now. You're spiritually dead. Spirit, your spirit has been corroded from the inside out. There is nothing left but a big, black, burnt hole. And then I walk out of the clinic and I'm, I, I'm like, look at me today. I'm celebrating three years. I didn't do that. I had nothing to do with that. That is a miracle. That's like, imagine a patient going to the doctor and the doctor says, you have 10 minutes to live. You have a really bad cancer. And then they come back to the doctor three years later and say, doc, guess what? I feel great. And the doctor looks at him and does run some tests. And they're like, wow, we're not sure what happened here. This is a, that's the definition of the word miracle. And if we had more time, I would show you how many times I would share. I actually went through the white book and the big book and pulled out many of the times the word miracle is used because that's what I need. A guy like me who's as sick as me needs a complete miracle. It has to be a miracle. And that miracle has to come from some power that is so big and so amazing that is well beyond my limited little brain. So I don't want an intellectual experience. I want a spiritual experience. So how do you find a spiritual experience? And I'll kind of, I guess I'll end on this topic. Um, how do you find, and I have people ask me this all the time, like, okay, that's all great. That sounds wonderful in theory, but how do you get there? How did you get to the point where you, you actually have some sobriety and you feel like you're, your life is the pieces of the puzzle are starting to come back together. And, and on any given day, I feel like I can actually hear God throughout the day. You know, I heard one of the earlier speakers talk about, you know, I, I won't, he wanted to make a trip to visit his family and he felt like his higher power said, nope, not this year. And, you know, I have people ask me that all the time. I think the question was like, you know, what do you, uh, how do you know you're listening to God and you're not hearing something else? You know, that, that's your higher power talking. And that's true. I, I think that's, first of all, the biggest benefit is the fellowship. I reach out to sober members. I reach out to my sponsor. I say, this is what I think God is telling me because I don't trust my own head. And if the other person says, yeah, that sounds like what God would do, then that's a start. But if the other person starts laughing, <laughs> that's usually a sign that that's not God, that that's my crazy head convincing me that it's God. Uh, and I tell you lots of stories about that. But um, so, you know, it's like this, you know, how do you find this spiritual experience? How do you find this connection, the spiritual experience? For me, and, and I loved, uh, like I said, I, I believe it was the previous speaker who shared about just doing the actions anyway. Uh, you know, the, the phrases, I think I wrote down a couple of phrases on this topic uh, that, you know, move a muscle, change a thought. Uh, take the actions and the thoughts will follow. I wrote down, call before, not after. Uh, and then I, I wrote down some actual things that I do at home that are actions for me. So for example, one of the things I started doing, my primary form of acting out is my, my cell phone. This guy, for those of you who are watching on the video, you know, my cell phone. That's my primary, primary means of acting out. I, you know, I, when I was acting out, I was on my cell phone all the time. And in particular, I would lock myself in the bathroom, tell my family I had a stomach ache, and I would disappear for a couple hours. And that's when I would act out, right? And they would keep coming and knocking. Are you okay in there? Oh, no, I'm in a lot of pain. Come back in a little while. I'm just, I'm really hurting. What was I doing? I was looking at pornographic images on my phone. 
And, you know, and that, and it's like, I'm hiding in the bathroom. It's like the one place where I could get some privacy in my house. So I took an action of powerlessness. I surrender my phone to God when I go to the bathroom. So now when I go to the bathroom, I stop just outside the door. As a matter of fact, I did this a while ago. I stop outside the door and I say, God, this is my telephone. I give it to you. You can have it. Please keep it. If you need me to have it when, you, when I come back out, then give it back to me. If not, I'll be perfectly fine if it's not here when I come back out of the bathroom. And I set it down on the floor outside the bathroom. I shut the door and I go, in, I go inside and shut the door. And I have been very, very religious about that. I, I, uh, for me, that is a, that's an action of powerlessness. And I do it as an act of surrender. See, that's the other piece of this actions of powerlessness is that if I'm acting, if I'm doing these actions as another means for me to control and manipulate my disease, then that's just my will. That's more white knuckling. That's more me trying to control. But if they're actions of surrender, so I take an action of powerlessness, I turn it into the form of surrender and I say, God, I am taking this action so that I can get closer to you. If I'm sitting in a restaurant, I've heard this shared many times, sitting in a restaurant, eating with my family, and I notice that someone comes and sits within my view that I can't stop looking at again and again. I get up and I move to another seat. You know, I change seats with my wife or my son. I say, can we switch? Uh, and I, when I, as I'm taking that action, I say, God, I am switching my seat, not to control my lust, but to surrender my right to lust to you. Because I am powerless over lust. Because I could switch my seat and still go home and look at pornography and masturbate as a result of what I just saw. And this changing the seat thing is not guaranteeing me anything. So I give it all to you. I turn to you. And it becomes one more opportunity for me to connect with my higher power. That action becomes another way of me surrendering and connecting to my higher power. So another one, this was a big one for me is um, I used to be addicted to Facebook. I was addicted to Facebook uh, every day, hours on Facebook. And uh, I used to tell myself that that's where I catch up with friends and family. You know, I, I reconnected with a lot of friends over my life, a lot of family members, and they were all on Facebook. And, uh, and guess what? Facebook was the number one reason why I would act out again. And I would lose my sobriety. And my sponsor kept asking me, why with the Facebook? Why can't you give up Facebook? And I'm like, no, it's a good thing. There's a lot of good things on Facebook. I find out about my, my best friend from high school who just had a, a, a grandkid or you know, this thing or that. You know, it's like a lot of great things I'm able to connect. I was able to make a lot of amends, actually, through the connections that I made on Facebook. So I just didn't want to give it up. And then one day... One day, I, I just came to the point where I decided I made that decision to turn my will, my life, and my Facebook over to God. And I said, God, I turn Facebook over to you. You can have it. If at some point in the future, you want me to get back on Facebook, then I will let you guide me to that through good sponsorship and the working of the program and a connection with you. But for now, I'm taking a break. And I didn't delete my account even. I just put a note on there and said, friends and family, I'm taking a break in case you're wondering where I went. Because I used to be very active. And I said, in case you're wondering where I'm, when I've been, 
I'm taking a break from Facebook, not sure when I'll be back. And that was probably one of the best actions of powerlessness that I have ever done because it significantly changed my relationship with my higher power. Because now instead of spending hours every night on Facebook, I really didn't have a whole lot else to do. Uh, the other thing that I gave up was Netflix. I didn't delete the account. I still, every once in a while, might sit down with my family and watch a movie on Netflix, sometimes even by myself. But it's so rare now that I don't even have the desire, the desire. Like there, there was a period where my family was out of town and the thought came to me, you know, you should watch a movie on Netflix. It's a good time to watch. And I had no desire to watch a movie on Netflix. Like, no, I'm actually enjoying just sitting here in silence and being with God for the moment. And I just, I just had no desire. I didn't do that. There was nothing I did to get to that point. It just happened. It's like in the step 10 promises, the 10th step promises, where it talks about, you know, no effort on my part resulted in this. That's exactly, it's like I, I just lost interest. And it's because I've been slowly, gradually giving up and releasing these, these things, these little indulgences. And I'm acting like a person who's powerless over lust. Because guess what? I'm powerless over lust. I can't be alone with Netflix. I can't be alone with Facebook and not have my higher power be involved. It's a scary place for me to go into that. As a matter of fact, when my family's around, I don't even go in the room that the computer is in. And it's not because I'm forcing myself out of the room. It's because I give that room to God. And I say, God, you can have that room. If you need me to get something out of it, let me know. And at that point, I might even make a phone call before I go into it. But for now, there's nothing in that room that I need. The only thing in that room is the laptop. And I don't need the laptop unless you tell me I need it, God. And, and, I, and even then, I don't trust my brain, so I'll probably call and check with somebody else before I do. And this, I believe that this has really changed uh, this whole journey for me. Um, so I'll just give me one second. I'm just going to glance and see if there's anything else on my notes that I really wanted to share. Um, no, I think I will stop there and uh, we'll see if anyone has any questions. Maybe that'll prompt another part of the discussion. All right. Thank you very much, Anjad. I love that. Um, we do have several questions here. Um, the first one, I'll kind of read the statement and then ask the question from Jonathan. I am powerless over lust. It comes in my mind either from outside or inside influences. He says, but I am, all capital letters, not powerless over acting out. I was, but now I have a choice. Before, I didn't. Now I can call people and use my higher power. This question, would you still call people if you didn't lose your sobriety? Would I still call people if I didn't lose my sobriety? Okay, yeah. I think I, I think I see where where he's going with that. Um, yeah, I you know I don't know if I, I I started a thought a little while earlier that I don't know that I finished, but um, you know when people ask me like how do you get how do you get this to this spiritual connection? How do you get to a point where your actions you know, like where you're, where you actually have a higher power that you can use to, to stay sober. And for me, it is through daily actions. I believe that spiritual connection for me 
is like any other muscle in my body that, you know, like the first time I try to run, I might only make it five minutes and then I can't even walk anymore because everything's cramping and I can't breathe and I'm in a lot of pain. But if I just run five minutes every day for a while, then slowly what happens is I build some endurance and then I can do 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And then before you know it, I can build up some momentum and build up some, uh, some strength in those muscles and actually get to a point where I can maybe run an hour or two. And this actually happened in the past where, I've, you know, when I used to run a lot, I could get to a point where I could run a couple of hours at a very good pace and be fine. But it didn't happen overnight. And the, the thing about that kind of training is when I stop running, then I lose those muscles and I lose that strength and I lose that ability. So for me, I call every day, like I, to this day, I have to be careful what I say because I think I forgot this morning, <laughs> but I, I call every day and I leave a message for my sponsor, even with three years sobriety. And to me, it has nothing to do with the sobriety. It has to do with the action of powerlessness. It's the action of surrender, that I am surrendering my thoughts today, that I'm connecting with my higher power through my sponsor. I believe, and I have, this is the role I have assigned my sponsor. And no offense to my sponsor, I love my sponsor, but I keep telling him, you are a cell phone. You are my community, you're my cell phone between me and God. And um, I, you know, whenever I talk to him, whenever I, I, I talk to him, I ask, I pray to God that before we have the conversation, that if there is something that God wants to say to me, that my higher power wants to say to me through this man's lips, then let me be humble enough to hear it. Because what happens is as soon as he starts saying something I don't like, my brain starts justifying. I'm like, no, he doesn't understand. Oh, I didn't, he, I didn't, I wasn't, he didn't let me explain it all the way. Uh, you know, and I have all these justifications. And so I just sit quietly and I say, God, keep me humble so that I can hear the message that you are sending to me through this man or through any other man. And what's happened, that's become my connection with everybody. There's days when I remember one day when my son was about 14, I was very upset and he said something. And I just stopped and looked at him and all my anger just dissolved because I felt like that was God saying through his mouth to me. And so I've, be, I've actually started listening to everybody. So I guess my answer to the question is that the actions I take have nothing to do with the amount of sobriety I have or how long I've been in the program. These are daily habits, daily actions that I take because I will be powerless over lust for the rest of my life. And every single day I have to take these actions. So it doesn't matter that, you know, oh, I've got three years of sobriety. Do I really need to make a phone call today? Do I need to talk to anybody? Uh, it, to me, that's just irrelevant. And there's no connection. It's I'm taking actions of powerlessness. I'm getting my chemotherapy. I'm taking my meds because I have a spiritual cancer, not because that my cancer has been in remission for three years. So anyway, I hope, I hope that answers the question. I'm not sure. Yeah, we're not cured. We get a daily reprieve contingent yeah. on our spiritual condition. So uh, here's another question from Hamza. Do you have to hit rock bottom in order to finally make a decision to follow recovery? Oh, wow. What a great question. Uh, there's so much discussion about rock bottom. Uh, I believe there's a, my sponsor is going to beat me up if he knows that I forgot the page number, but, or the page I believe it's in the 12 and 12 that there's a, there's some discussion about rock bottom. Uh, but 
you know, I'm no expert on rock bottom. My experience, strength, and hope is that, you know, I have hit rock bottom many times, quote unquote rock bottom. That for me, rock bottom is a a place in my a place inside of me where I just decide enough is enough. And that can come at so many different levels. And I I know people in the program, I myself went through this phase who are still searching for rock bottom. Uh, I think that's what was happening to me when I was a chronic slipper. I was just digging and digging, hoping that eventually I'd hit some rocks at the bottom. You know, it's like that I would get to this point where the shovel would just stop. And I'm like, oh, this must be rock bottom. Now I'm ready to come back up. Um, But I guess that decision made a decision. For me, the decision was that today's going to be my rock bottom. That today's going to be the point where I'm just enough is enough. I, you know, the, one of the phrases that I didn't share earlier is I have this phrase where I say, I refuse to believe. So my, my sponsor has one, he says, I choose to believe. So I say, I choose to believe that so-and-so was, uh, didn't mean to hurt my feelings. I choose to believe that blah, blah, blah. But I also have one that I say, I refuse to believe that my higher power is out to punish me. I refuse to believe that I have to keep going down deeper to get sober. I refuse to believe that my higher power cannot make me sober. And I was talking to one of one of the guys I work with I was the other day, and I was saying that I think it's because I'm so stubborn that this actually helped me. Because I say that all the time. I'm like, no, I refuse to believe that. You know, my, my mind will tell me, well, you haven't hit rock bottom yet. You know that, right? Like there's guys who have gone out there and done this, 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 and this, and all you've done is porn and masturbation. So you really, truly haven't hit rock bottom. I'm like, well, what about the time that I almost killed myself in 2007? You know, wouldn't that count? Yeah, but that was that rock bottom only got you about almost six years of sobriety. You need another rock bottom to get some more sobriety. And I just, I literally, I have to call BS on that. I'm like, you know, brain, I'm not buying it. I refuse to believe that I have to keep going down any deeper in order to get that miracle. I could get that miracle today, right where I'm at. And so I, you know, in terms of of that, for me, it's when I get to the point that I am insistent that my higher power, you know, I, I, I guess I have this belief that God is constantly sending miracles my way, but my ego keeps getting in the way. My self-obsession keeps getting in the way. And so I can't, I can't receive any of that, but it's not that they're not coming. It's just, I'm blocked. So when I say, God, I turn to you, remove from me what is blocking me from you. And those things start to move out of the way. Here come the miracles. I don't have to keep digging for the miracles to come. The miracles have been coming all along. So that's just my experience strength and hope on that. All right. Thank you, man. You're spot on. Uh, can you talk more about, this is from Daniel. Can you talk more about the difference? And I'm not a text guy, B slash W. I'm not sure. By, oh, between. By the way. Between. between. Okay. Thank you. Can you talk more about the difference between taking an action of powerlessness as a way to control lust versus an act of surrender? Question mark. It's hard for me to see the difference. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent question, and I, I you know I felt like I didn't really explain that well enough. But you know, again, I pause. I'm just going to ask God to take over because I don't trust what what comes out of my brain. But my immediate uh, thought on that, uh, and hopefully this is from God, is that um, 
See, actions, for me, actions of control are usually born out of my intellect. Uh, it's some great idea that I have. Uh, so, for example, you know, uh, I, you know the, the multiple filters that I used to have on my phone. You know, the fil- I used to have my phone. You know, we talked a lot about my phone. My phone has been a major issue for me for a really long time. My phone used to be so locked down that I'm surprised I could even receive a phone call on it. I had so many filters and my wife had the password of this and, you know, it was like all this stuff, but guess what? I always found a way around because those were all, all those filters and all those passwords and all of that for me were just actions of control. It was me trying to control and manipulate, uh, deleting, uh, you know, I forgot what it was, but there was one point I deleted some account that I had and I deleted it very in, an, in a place of anger. And it was a, I am deleting you so that you no longer give me any trouble, which was very different than when I came off of Facebook. When I came off Facebook, I didn't delete anything. I just said, God, I give you Facebook. You can have it. And every time I had the urge to go back to Facebook, I just said, God, I'm turning it back over to you. I'm turning it back over to you until that desire faded away. Um, But there wasn't any struggle involved. There wasn't any effort on my part. It was, you know, that so the difference between surrender, I guess it's the same. The question that's being asked to me is the same question as what's the difference between uh, control and surrender? And, uh, you know, for me, control is, so I guess, I, you know, I'll give an analogy. I, you know, it's um, if I'm in a battle with somebody and, and me and another person are having a sword fight and we're fighting with the swords. Every swing that I take with that sword is an action of control on my part to try to defeat the opponent. But when I decide I'm going to surrender, there is no action involved. I just let go. And, I, you know, I, I release every muscle in my body until the sword falls out of my hand onto the ground. There's not, you know, it's, it takes like no effort or strength to let go of something. It takes a lot of effort and strength to hold on to something. And for me, that's the big difference is if I'm having to put a lot of effort into something. uh, So the voice of God versus voice of me, that's another way to look at this question. Uh, The voice of me is angry. It's loud. It's fast and hyper. It's uh, impatient. Oh, you have to do it now. You have to do it now. You know, like, for example, I came up uh, this. I think my sponsor thinks this is the most brilliant idea I've ever had. Uh, I came up with the idea that on Facebook, I was going to post my status and say, if I have ever hurt you, please let me know so that I can make amends to you. And my sponsor laughed so hard, so hard. He's like, there you go again, trying to control and manipulate. He's like, why don't you just buy like several billboards and put them out all over the place? Maybe get an ad on the internet and pull one out and say, if you happen to know this guy and he's ever hurt you, Please contact this number to get your amends, you know, and, and be sure to describe in detail what you want that amends to be, you know. Uh, but when I, you know, <laughs> it's, I was like the craziest idea, but it was so impatient. The idea was so impatient that my brain didn't even want to wait five seconds to contact my sponsor to ask if that was a good idea. I was like, no, 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 no. Do it now. Do it now. Put it now. Come on. Come on. Now, no, 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 no. And that to me, is like the voice of me. That's the voice of action. That's the voice of uh, the voice of of control and willpower and ego and self obsession. 
the voice of God is calm. It's, it's like, a, like a breeze that comes for me, that I, I feel it in my heart, not in my head. And it's very calm and very patient. And it's kind of like, well, perhaps you could do this. That's what that feels like for me. And my sponsor has taught me the technique of taking deep breaths. So whenever I take an action of powerlessness, I, 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 it's like almost inst- it's instinct now. I take a deep breath in before I take that action, before I surrender that thing that I'm surrendering. It's, I take a deep breath in. So God, I give you my phone for the next hour because I don't, I feel very restless right now and I'm not sure what I might search up on my phone. And I go and I put it in another room and I come to the other room which is very different than, okay, I'm sick and tired of looking at this phone. I'm, I know I'm going to search up something and I'm going to go throw it in the other room. You know, that to me is just two different experiences. That's, the, that's, the, that's what I've got on that one. We've got many comments here. One of them is, uh, this, this is from George. This disease is like being on an elevator that only goes down. The point where I push the button Stop the elevator and get out is my bottom. Then I take the steps back up. He wrote, thank you so much. I loved every minute, especially the surrender of the cell phone before the bathroom that struck a chord. So that definitely struck a chord. Um, One here says, I see myself like a diabetic when I'm normal. I have a balance to take the correct actions that are appropriate for my condition. One of the things that I'd like to comment on was that I really thought was very good is the moment you feel the slightest disturbance, um, you know, you pray, hold me and love me until you can like get a hold of somebody and take actions to get past that. And, you know, in the past, you would wait till either you were seconds from acting out and then start with your hair on fire, start trying to, you know, you're already uh, into it. Um, so I guess the thought that I was thinking about when, as you talked about that was, you know, for somebody that wants it, you know, uh, calling after is what you said was, you know, you would call to kind of complete your cycle. Um, but I, I, I guess what I got from that is, and maybe you could talk a little more about that is if you want it, that you'll call in the moment you get the disturbance or that you'll take the actions the moment, because that's when you really don't want to take those actions. So I guess that shows that I really want it if I'll do it before and not when I'm close because the minute I pause or don't do seems like I'm already made my choice. Like you said, can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. Uh, you, uh, as you were saying that I was thinking about, uh, you know, for me, whenever I have that disturbance, this is the, I'm a very, I guess I'm a very visual person. I have all these like visual images that pop into my head. I'm an image junkie. That's what I am. Uh, I, uh, I envision that that disturbance is actually a bomb sitting in my hand or in my lap. It's an explosive device that is, is just ticking. And I can hear it ticking sometimes. Like I just, that disturbance is sitting inside of me and I just hear that. And I feel like, okay, any minute now, this is going to blow my face off. It's going to just completely like blow up my head. I have to give it away. I have to get this thing out away from me as quickly as possible before it blows up. 
And I, you know, and it's interesting because in the beginning, I, you know, I had, I had one guy, we were both sort of newer in the program in the beginning. This was before texting. So texting was not very common back then. Uh, Very few people had phones that you could text on very well. So most of us didn't text. And I had a guy who would call me every five to seven minutes throughout the day. And they were little 10 second calls. So it's the equivalent of a text today. He would call, I would pick up the phone. He would say, I just want to surrender the lady who just walked past me. Thanks. Bye. And he would hang up. Then like five minutes later, I'd get another call, maybe 10 minutes later throughout the day. And then what happened is that habit of surrendering those things. And I noticed that. So I started doing the same thing. I started, you know, like calling or texting, you know, or writing it down and, you know, like sharing them at some point. And I, um, I noticed that they became fewer and farther in between. So it's what was in the beginning, every five minutes became every hour, became every two hours, every six hours, every 10 hours. Uh, and so, you know, that, that idea of, um, you know, just like not holding on to that disturbance. Cool. So, well, Amjad, that is our time. Uh, I see Carl has shown up. Thank you for being here, Carl. And Amjad, if you could uh, close us out with the program prayer of your choosing. Okay. I actually, um, I don't know if this is appropriate, but I wanted to share a, a personal prayer that I use that's uh, tied to the program literature, but uh, it's, uh, it's one that has saved me many, many a time. Absolutely. So, yeah. So uh, I actually call this my embrace prayer. Uh, I asked God for the words one day and I sat there with the pen until he gave them to me and I wrote them down. So I say, uh, it's a third step type prayer. So God, I offer to you my soul, fill it with your love that I will not want, that I will not need anything or anyone to fill up what is lacking in me. I ask you, my loving God, to connect with me and make me whole. In your loving arms, all my needs are met. Send me into this day as your servant, that I may do your will today, and that I may help, your, uh, help my fellows today, rather than obsess about my loneliness, fears, resentments, guilt, unworthiness, or failures. Put me to work doing your will. Use me to your ends. I release my desires to you. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.